Welcome to episode 25 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. People actually often don't want to get help for eating disorders. You know, with anxiety and depression, it feels really bad and people want to get rid of it so they can go back to living their normal lives. But with eating disorders, it serves so much of a function for them. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Bianca Lebenholtz of Brighter Sky Psychology. Bianca is a clinical psychologist who has worked across a range of settings with children, adolescents, and young adults. Bianca has a special interest in working with the LGBTQIA community, anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, disordered eating, and obsessive-compulsive disorders. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory based in Australia and launching in April this year. TalkLink lists mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists. Users can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they would like to connect with. If you're a mental health professional and you'd like to get your name out there or would like to grow your business, you can sign up at talklink.com.au forward slash get hyphen listed. Or you can send us an email to hey at talklink.com.au if you'd like to know more. Okay, let's dive in. So I work in private practice and I see a whole range of mental health issues, including eating disorders. And I have also spent the last two years working in an adult inpatient unit for eating disorders in a public hospital. Um, So in that setting, that's where people typically with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa will come when they're extremely medically compromised. So they're needing um, weight restoration, they're needing to be observed, monitored medically at that stage. And then once they progress through their treatment, they'll go to maybe a day program and then outpatient. So we can definitely talk more about those different settings. But my main experience with eating disorders is in the inpatient unit. Yeah, that's amazing. So I guess in that capacity, you see the extreme of eating disorders. Yes, very much so. Um, They basically have to be under a certain body weight and very medically compromised to get to that point. So yeah, very different to who I see in private practice. They are not as medically compromised. So they're able to engage in the therapy more. Yeah. Whereas in the inpatient unit, because they're so medically compromised, they don't have the cognitive capacity to engage in the psychological therapy. It's more about medically, um, monitoring them and and weight restoring them because when you're so malnourished the brain doesn't work very well it's not functioning to its best so it's really hard to engage in that deeper psychological work so that's why we try and just we might have them in the the um, inpatient unit for maybe two to six weeks till their weight restored a little bit more and their brain's working and then they'll as I said before go to the next stage which might be like a day program so that might be, you know, four days a week from nine to three. And they do a few meals there, do a bit more psychological work. And once they're at the point where they're even more weight restored and getting the hang of getting back to normal eating, then they might go to outpatients or um, private practice, which is the other setting I work in. And that might be, you know, one session a week of psychological therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that. 
I guess the inpatient unit is the one that sparks my interest first because it's like the extreme representation of what an eating disorder can go to. So what do you see coming through the doors? Do you see any patterns between like men versus women, ages, mm. um, cultural demographics? Yeah. So um, it is an adult inpatient unit that I see, um, that I'm at. So it's obviously 18 and above. Um, it is predominantly female. In the two years I've worked there, I've only seen one male come through. That is not to say that males do not have eating disorders. Um, it's definitely more prevalent in females. And it, it can look a little bit different in males. Often they are wanting to muscle so it, it like there's muscle dysmorphia um and that's about them wanting to look more like that ideal muscular male so they might they might restrict their food to to lean up but it's also about abusing steroids and things like that whereas the female ideal body um is more about being really skinny that that typical model look. So that's that can be more dangerous in females. So they'll often present in emergency or in these eating sort of inpatient units because it's more medically compromising to be extremely skinny than to be muscular. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you're putting air quotes, you're putting air quotes in there just to put in context that it's like that's the perceived thing that is is driving them to that behavior pattern. Yes. That is important. We are on a podcast. So when I say ideal body, I am doing those little quotes because obviously there is, that is not an ideal body. It's society's standards of what's ideal, which is very, very damaging. That's another whole conversation we can have soon. Um, yes. Yeah, so definitely the trends going into an eating disorder unit, females, young, um, as I said, it's an adult inpatient unit, but definitely between the ages of 18 to 30 would be very common. There was only a few people I've seen in the couple of years that might be in their 50s. So definitely younger females, culturally, a little bit hard to say just because where I'm based in a specific location, it's probably a little bit biased. Um, but as we know from research, it's definitely more prevalent in Western societies because that's that's what words in quotations, the ideal body looks like in the Western countries. So the idea of a man who's trying to bulk up and get that chiseled figure and lean up, mm. you know, that uh, you talked about that being a, um, a version of male um, expression of an eating disorder. That's a surprise to me. I didn't appreciate that. So maybe take us back mm. one step. Like what's the current definition of what um, anorexia nervosa is? And then what's the definition of what bulimia is? Yes, that's a really good question. And this can be confusing and I'll explain why. So anorexia nervosa is characterized by an extreme fear of weight gain. Um, it's also extreme weight loss. So they have to be under underweight, very much severely underweight um, and very much have a distorted perception of themselves. So they actually will see themselves as being overweight even when they are severely underweight. So it's those three things. It's restricting eating, intense fear of weight gain, and disordered perception of themselves. So um, that can also look like placing a really high importance of body weight on their self-esteem. So the way that they see themselves being skinny is super, super important compared to other things. 
People with maybe a more healthy self-esteem might um, base things like travel, their relationships, their work, study on how they feel about themselves. But with eating disorders, it's very blown out of proportion. They're, the way that they see themselves is hugely important to their self-worth. And also a persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of their low weight. So it's really hard, even in the inpatient setting. So they are essentially, some of them are actually dying and they can't see that that's what's going on because that's not what's important to them at that stage. So that's anorexia and that's mainly what you'll see in an inpatient ward. Bulimia is characterized by binge eating and compensatory behaviors. So it's not just purging or vomiting. It could also be abusing laxatives, could be excessive exercise, anything that yeah, compensates eating a lot. So the reason that we often see more of anorexia in the inpatient settings is because people with anorexia have to have significantly low body weight. Whereas bulimia, because it's binging and purging, sometimes they're not quite as underweight. So, but that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of medical complications as well that go with bulimia. What can also make it a little bit confusing that people probably don't know too much about, but I know that often people will associate binging and purging or purging with bulimia. As soon as someone says that they're purging, they think it's bulimia. There is actually a subtype of anorexia where people do purge. Um, what makes the difference between anorexia with a purging subtype is that they have to be, as I said, significantly um, low in body weight. So bulimia does not often, it doesn't, it doesn't always present as someone that's significantly underweight. And then there's also binge eating disorder, which I have had some experience with um, that is characterized by large episodes of binging. So binging is eating a lot of food in a short amount of time and that sense of like a lot of lack of control over the binge. So they feel really out of control. That doesn't present in um, eating disorder inpatient units because that can be associated with being overweight binge eating disorder rather than being significantly underweight. That's kind of the, the main, I would say the main three eating disorders. There are other ones, but probably won't go into them today as they're not as prevalent. So you talked about um, the risk of dying in context of anorexia. Yeah. Do people with anorexia actually die? Yes, actually. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental health disorder, particularly anorexia nervosa. Wow. It is the highest death rate of all mental illness. Yeah, so it's, it's very, very life-threatening. There are many, many medical complications of having an eating disorder. So it affects your heart, your kidneys, your liver. Um, for females, it can result in amenorrhea, which is loss of their period, which obviously means that they're infertile. So a lot of people with anorexia nervosa, well, it's actually one of the, the most easy ways of identifying if someone is underweight is when they lose their period. Um, they also have weakened immune systems, they faint. There's, there's so many medical complications with anorexia and um, oh, that's just really medical complications of being underweight. And then bulimia has some added medical complications because of the purging. So when people purge, they can damage their teeth, they, their esophagus can be damaged. I believe that 
esophagus damage can um, result in higher risk of having esophagus cancer. Um, and also because the, the digestive system actually becomes a bit out of whack. So because people are eating and then purging, their bowels actually stop working properly because that's not they're not used to the food going in and then out as it normally would. So often that can lead to constipation or incontinence. So you can see a lot of people in the inpatient unit um, when they're refeeding, it can, it can actually be really difficult for them to go to the toilet because their bowels are not used to working, especially when you've been abusing laxatives as well. Your body is used to only being able to go to the toilet when you've taken the pills so that it stops, kind of stops working when you stop taking laxatives because your body becomes reliant on them. So tons of medical complications. So this is why I guess eating disorders have very much a different um, therapeutic approach to other mental illnesses. You don't see, you know, these kind of medical complications with other, um, other mental health disorders. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig into those um, therapeutic paths in a moment, but I guess, is that, is, do you maybe have like a case study of someone that you've worked with that, you know, you can appropriately anonymize um, mm. that you can maybe talk us through just to help make some of this a little bit more personal and real? Is there anyone you can think of? Yes, I definitely can. So there are unfortunately some people who are very much stuck in this system where they do go in and out of hospital and often that is because their environment at home is not very safe and sometimes it feels more safe to be going in and out of hospital and having eating disorder. So I might actually explain a little bit firstly about sometimes why eating disorders occur. Yeah, please. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, believe that eating disorders are people who are really superficial, that just want to diet. It's a lot of misconception around why eating disorders occur. And I really want to pay some attention to this because I think there's a lot of stigma and it's really difficult for people with eating disorders. It is so, so difficult for them and other people will perceive them as just superficial. And that's really, really hard for them. So I just want to kind of debunk some of those myths really. Um, yeah. All right, let's, yeah, why do eating disorders occur? Yeah, so one of the, the main ones that I want to draw attention to is the sense of having a lack of control. Eating disorders are very often linked to needing control in their lives. So let's say, for example, someone who has been through PTSD, so they've had some real trauma in their life, or they've just had a life where there's a lot of lack of control. Maybe they've been sexually abused, maybe when they were younger, you know, their parents divorced and they were going between houses and then they were bullied and had to move schools and so many things in their life that were out of their control. And often because of the way that we live in this society that really values um, being skinny and looking a certain way, it's a really easy thing to latch onto for people to feel like they can have control over. So if I control the way my body looks and my shape and my weight, I feel like I have some control over my life. So it's it's just an avenue for, that gets grasped onto to feel in control. And maybe in other countries where um, 
um, that ideal body is not so valued, it won't present in an eating disorder. Some people might have trauma, but they'll latch onto maybe something else to gain control. That sometimes that is self-harming, taking drugs, other things to ease that emotional pain. But in the Western world, it's very easy to sort of latch onto what society tells us is beautiful. So I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. So it's basically when someone feels that they don't have control and then they look to the one thing that they can control and that's what they put mm. in their mouth and they start exercising yes. their agency through what they put in their mouth. Yes, yes. So that control over what I eat, like I can control what I eat. I can control how much exercise I do. I can control how I look. It really gives them that sense of control over their lives. And sometimes then when they come into treatment because they're so medically unstable, it's actually very threatening for them because having that restriction, that control over their lives as it manifests in food, we as mental health care professionals are actually taking away, this is how they perceive it sometimes, we're taking away their coping mechanism. Like this is the one thing they have in their lives that they have control over and we are taking that away from them. Can you imagine how threatening that feels for them? to come into an inpatient unit and be forced to yeah. refeed, like to, to put on weight. They feel like they have nothing left. They have no control over the one thing. Yeah. Yeah, that refeeding is often at the end of a tube, right? Mm, that's like a that's good question. sometimes a physical refeeding. Yeah, so I can definitely talk. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about that and then I'll come back to a case study. Yeah, sure. um, what it kind of looks like in an eating disorder inpatient unit, what the treatment looks like, is mainly focused around weight restoration. So it is mainly around helping them to develop healthy eating patterns again, eating normally. Like it, these things might sound so um, weird to someone who doesn't work with eating disorders. Like we wouldn't maybe think twice about how we eat things, but people with eating disorders, because eating is so difficult for them because they might be you know, trying to lose weight, they might engage in behaviors like cutting up food really, really small, playing with their food, postponing eating, hiding food. I, I actually probably won't go into too many of these because just in case that actually is triggering for people, if people with eating disorders are listening, I don't want to give away too many of those things that might be a bit triggering for them. Um, but those are the kinds of things that we're working with to help them develop eating normally or eating in a more healthy way where we just eat intuitively we just eat because we enjoy the food not because of the calories that are in the food it's just developing that healthy relationship with food again so my role would be to sit with them and physically eat with them and model what normal eating looks like what the pace of eating looks like how long I'd chew it for not keeping it in my mouth for so long or not hiding it those kind of things so a lot of it as I said in the inpatient unit is around just gaining the weight, getting that healthy relationship with food again. Um, something really interesting that people might not know about is something called refeeding syndrome. Something it's really very, very dangerous. And it's when people with an eating disorder would eat a lot of food too quickly when they're weight restoring. So there's that can actually lead to very serious medical complications because the body is used to eating a certain amount, the stomach has shrunk, so eating a lot of food can actually be really damaging. So that's why this has to be monitored medically, like in the in a hospital, to make sure it's 
staggered. So they start off on a smaller meal plan and then as their, their weight is monitored, if they haven't put on a lot of weight in that week, their meal plan will move up and then it keeps going up till their body adjusts. So it's that's why it can be a number of weeks depending on the weight that they come in and how healthy they are. It's a, it's a bit of a staggered approach. So does that answer your questions about sort of, I guess, what it looks like in the eating disorder unit? It does. I, I want to go back because I sort of derailed you a little bit there. You were talking about why people get eating yeah. disorders and how if you start feeding them, it can be such a loss of the the very thing that they've tried to chase. And it's ringing all these bells for me because we had a conversation with an addiction expert yeah. and his reflection was often people focus on the alcohol or the drugs and they think, man, this behavior needs to change. Yes. And they miss the underlying fact that the behavior is a symptom of a much bigger problem elsewhere. And you can poke at the behavior all you want, but that's not going to resolve the issue. And it's sort of ringing these connections for me. Um, and just listening to you speak, it, it sounds like it's a similar thing. Mm, Would that be a fair read? Definitely. Yep. And that's why, unfortunately, we can't do a lot of that really good work where we um, look at the underlying factor in the inpatient unit because they're so medically compromised that they can't, as I said before, they can't really engage in that therapy because their minds aren't able to think that well. So we try and um, get them weight restored so their minds work better. And then in private practice, in my other role, that's where I do all that kind of good work in looking at what's underlying this. Why, why is this eating disorder here? Is this about a lack of control, for example? And if so, how can we help them to develop a more healthy way of coping. So what other areas of your life can you gain control over? How can we, you know, let, let's really get into these other areas. Let's, let's look at your hobbies. Let's look at getting a job and all these kind of things. So really working with their self-esteem and helping them to develop, yeah, a healthier self-esteem. So that's very, yeah, on, on the money there. Um, but that, that work definitely comes a bit later. But yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah very similar hmm yeah are there any other causes that jump to mind or is that the primary one the lack of control so there are genetic predispositions for eating disorders so and also if someone in the family has had an eating disorder that can make someone more likely to have one so also that's just in terms of modeling like if you've had a parent that engages in a lot of dieting or is eating disorder then you might learn that that's something that you want to do or that, that you feel like you have to do many many risk factors such as what about bullying of people in you know school that they were bullied for their weight that could be something perfectionism is a huge risk factor so um perfectionism goes very much hand in hand with eating disorders having to be having to do everything perfectly having to eat a certain way look a certain way um so there's there's a whole list of different things that can contribute to developing an eating disorder but trauma is definitely a very large one and which is where that that feeling of needing control comes in because obviously trauma mm. gives you a, a huge lack of um control in your life when you're exposed to something could be something that you've seen or something that's been done to you um that, that can have very long-lasting impacts and can be very tricky to navigate so Eating disorders, yeah, as well as just having um, poor emotional regulation, let's say. So people that have a lot of difficulty regulating their emotions, you know, calming themselves down when they're anxious or when they're depressed. There's, you know, self-harm, as I said before, drug and alcohol abuse, 
but eating disorders definitely comes into that because it is in a way soothing for them maybe to purge or control their weight. It is a way for them to soothe that kind of anxiety that comes up. It's very short-term soothing. So with all um, self-harming behaviours in the short term, they feel that sense of relief. They're, they feel like, oh, in that, in that moment, my anxiety is gone. I've purged or I've self-harmed. But in the long term, because they get that instant relief or that positive reinforcement, it does keep it going. So they get that burst of, I feel good. So next time their anxiety comes up, they think, oh, I better do that again. And that's how self-harming behaviors continue. But in the long term, they're unhelpful because obviously eating disorders are very um, dangerous and it doesn't teach you how to manage your emotions in a healthy or constructive way. So this is kind of why people engage in self-harming behaviors. And is is that what you saw in the case study that you were thinking of? Mm, yeah, so I can definitely go back to that. So I've seen um, quite a few people come in that have experienced some kind of trauma and um, it is a way for them to soothe themselves. So maybe they have nightmares in the middle of the night and might wake up and start doing sit-ups because that's soothing for them. It takes their mind off the flashbacks that they're they're having. Um and, you know, maybe they've come from a family that's abusing them. So just in, in, some, in a case study I'm thinking of. So, you know, we might wait, restore them in that inpatient unit and do our best. But if they're going back to a, an environment that keeps re-traumatizing them, they're just going to go straight back to their eating disorders, eating disorder behaviors, because that suits them. And then they end up in hospital again. And at least in hospital, they're away from that environment that's traumatizing. So we often see them going back and forth from as much as they hate being in the, the inpatient unit, well, their eating disorders hate it um, because that's very threatening to them to have to gain weight. Being at home is also very threatening. So we do see this back and forth and often where the therapy needs to be like long-term is actually with the family. So how can we make this environment at home supportive for that person to come home and not be re-traumatized and not be triggered. So a lot of the work is actually with the carers, their supports as well as just with them. So what sort of work do you do with the families and the support? Yeah, really good question. So we might train them up in meal support therapy. So that might be sitting with them while they're eating, um, prompting them to maybe eat a bit quicker or not chew for as long, all those kinds of things that I said before. Um, it might also look like telling them things that are unhelpful to stop saying things that might be unhelpful. For example, some people might say, get frustrated with them and say, why can't you just eat or just eat those kinds of things, which for them obviously would be really invalidating and insensitive because they're struggling. As I've said before, that this is something that gives them a sense of control and they're really, really struggling. So saying just eat is really invalidating to actually the experience that they're going through. And for example, another thing, this is actually something that I would encourage all people to not do is commenting on people's physical appearance in terms of their weight. So people with eating disorders do get particularly triggered by people saying, oh, you're doing really well, you're looking really healthy because they perceive that as I'm fat. So 
although the families of friends are actually trying to be really supportive and saying, they're saying you're doing really well with your recovery, like you're looking so much better, you're looking healthier, for them that can send them straight backwards. Even a comment, one single comment like that could lead to restriction or purging. So So they're absolutely hypersensitive around comments around their body image. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think I just encourage everyone, regardless of people that have eating disorders or not, or even in this context, just not to comment on people's appearance because you actually don't know if someone is developing an eating disorder. Often people that may be overweight, that lose weight, people really give a lot of positive reinforcement to. They say, wow, you're looking great. You've lost so much weight. You're looking really healthy. Even, you know, even the other way where people are losing weight. And they could be developing an eating disorder and they're getting all this positive reinforcement. People don't know that they they may have to be developing an eating disorder. They think, oh, you just lost a couple of kilos and that's really healthy. But you don't know what people are actually going through inside. The the comment you made earlier about binge eating and, you know, someone going the other weight and having a lot of, you know, Mm. and being overweight was sort of interesting because I think usually when you talk about eating disorders, people imagine... Um, a, a severely anorexic yeah. um, young woman, but you may be dealing with someone who's struggling with an eating disorder who's on the other end of the spectrum just as much. Is that a fair read? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and there's with binge eating disorder, one of you know the criteria of that is it's actually quite distressing for them that there is a lot of shame uh, associated with um, binging because there is the gaining weight and feeling that lack of control that doesn't feel good for them. So. That's, that's another really important um, topic that you've raised there is that eating disorders, they do not always look like that, that stereotypical um, body that you might see on TV, that really, really skinny person. And that's why it's also really dangerous because, for example, bulimia, as I said before, that doesn't always present in that anorexic body. Um, the little quotation marks there with anorexic. Bulimia doesn't always look like that, but that doesn't mean they're not struggling and someone might make a comment about their appearance, not knowing that they have an eating disorder because they don't look like they do. So it's really important to not comment really on people's weight loss because you don't actually know what they're experiencing. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people listening and this conversation cuts pretty close to the bone for me. I've, I've um, got someone in my uh, close family who struggled um, with fairly severe expression of eating disorders Mm. and it's really hard to know what to do when you were talking about saying you know why don't you just eat more Mm. it it's an honest question that someone who's not familiar or even someone who is familiar with eating disorders would have so Mm. what what would you say to someone listening or someone who maybe knows someone who is going through this who's wondering well why don't you just go out and eating a eat a burger like Mm. what's the problem like what would you say to that Yeah, I think it's about acknowledgement. So you might want to say, like, I can see that you're really struggling with your eating. Is there any way that I can support you or help you or maybe help to link them up with a service or even just having a really gentle conversation, but just acknowledging that it's really hard for them rather than coming from a sort of more punishing or punitive tone of saying, you know, why can't you eat? It's ridiculous or dieting is so stupid or those kinds of things because as I said it doesn't they don't feel like that's in their control and it's so so difficult for them so just to be really validating and and caring and supportive you know asking how you can support them those kinds of things 
would be much more helpful. So it sounds like tough love is not going to help someone in that vulnerable position at all. Mm, sometimes it gets to the point if they, as I've sort of said, like a severely, severely underweight, it does get to a point where you can't be as lenient. For example, sometimes they do, they are put on treatment orders. So for example, if someone who um, is severely underweight, they are at risk of dying or fainting or things like that that don't want help and they refuse help the psychiatrists or doctors will actually have to put them on a treatment order which means that they will have to have care even if it's yeah. not what they want but that, that's in a clinical context though yeah. right? that's, that's yes controlled by professionals yes. in an inpatient unit like yes. where you work yes exactly so that's that is a little bit different yeah in fact, Bianca, when you said, you know, there's no point in punishing them, that made a connection for me. Um, I was driving down the road last week and I saw a young lady who was just powering, walking really fast and she was visibly extremely underweight. Mm. And I guess I've seen a lot of that sort of behavior. Um, and I'm sure people listening have probably seen, you know, really underweight people doing really strenuous exercise and it looks like they're punishing their bodies. Mm. Um, what's going on there and what are we seeing? Yeah. So I guess the ex exercise, the excessive exercise is just another form of um, gaining that control. So it's just another way for them to be a certain body shape or weight. So it's just comes in with the restriction. It's all, it's all around ways that they can manage their weight. But actually you just raised um, something for me when you said, how can we support people? A really good way to support someone who is an excessive exerciser is actually offering to go for a walk with them so that you can kind of monitor it. You can change the pace. So you might slow it down. You might cut the time down. You might say to someone who, exercises or walks eight hours a day, which I have seen in the inpatient unit. I have seen people that literally are walking eight hours a day and restricting their food. Um, you might want to just go out with them and say, you know what, let's go for a 10 minute walk around the block. So you can really support people by, by helping them to even just minimize some of those behaviors. So, because it can be really extreme for them to go from walking eight hours a day to doing none of those behaviors. So it even might just be a stepped approach where you just want to start helping them to reduce it. It's sort of baby steps. It's very, very difficult for them to feel like they have all this control to no control. So sometimes depending on their medical instability, if they're, they're not severely underweight, you might want, you could take a more tapered approach like that. If they are exercising eight hours a day, not eating and they're on the verge of fainting, then the, most evidence-based treatment is to seize all exercise and focus on weight restoration. So obviously it's very different depending on where they're at in their recovery. Yeah. I guess we've talked about a pretty extreme example and that's where you're, you know, at the coal face dealing with people struggling with eating disorders at the absolutely extreme end to the point of where they, they could potentially die. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's probably, you know, people listening who may themselves become aware that they are looking in the mirror and they're seeing things that aren't there. So they might become aware of the um, body dysmorphia you've described, or they may hear and pick that up in friends or family. Yeah. So for someone who's sort of, you know, tinkering on the start of behavior patterns, you know, that like you say, they're playing with their food, all these risks, signs and, you know, obsession about their body weight starting to show, mm. uh, what sort of things should someone do that's beginning to worry about themselves or someone that they know or significant to them? Mm. 
I think definitely seeking help. That's probably a really obvious answer. But um, getting, yeah, getting in touch with the therapist, letting your friends and family know if this is something you're struggling with um, and just seeking help because early intervention is has the best prognosis. It's when this can go on for years that it can be really hard to get out of because these beliefs and behaviours are so entrenched in their lives. But if it's just starting out that they're noticing these things, they, there's so much hope for their future that they, they get help, they can get so much support. And that's, that's where I sort of am in my private practice role is I see people that um, maybe it's not so entrenched yet, it's just early days and I can do some really good work with them around that. So I would definitely encourage them to reach out and speak to someone. Um, often people with the developing eating disorders or who have eating disorders are very secretive about it because they know that once they start getting help or they tell people, they are going to lose that sense of control, which is what I was touching on before. So they don't want to get help for it. It, it's, it is one of the few mental health issues that people actually often don't want to get help for eating disorders. You know, with anxiety and depression, it feels really bad and people want to get rid of it so they can go back to living their normal lives. But with eating disorders, it serves so much of a function for them to be able to gain that control or or manage their emotions that they don't want to get rid of it. And they can be really ambivalent about recovery. So we see that so much across, across all areas really, but mainly in the inpatient units, that they can see how detrimental it is. They're in and out of hospital often, they can't get a job, they can't go out for dinner with their friends, they can't see their friends. It's so debilitating, but they can't let go of the eating disorder at the same time because it serves such a purpose in their lives. So it can be really, really tricky for people to seek help. But I really encourage it because you can learn other ways of coping. And when you can learn more healthy and helpful ways of coping with whatever it is that's underlying the eating disorder, you can also have all those amazing parts of your life back. People that have been in, eat, in these inpatient units haven't been out for meals with their friends in years and they miss that and they're really stuck at home in bed because they have no energy to get up and do things or they can't work because their minds can't function. So they really lose out on so much of their lives. So seeking help can really bring them a more fulfilling life. I think that's a really insightful connection that you made again to the fact that someone may not want to give it up because mm. it's a tool for them. Ultimately, it's an instrument for them to help and cope with something that's deeper and more complex than their immediate you know, bodies. I think it's really, it's a really good insightful point you made there. So if someone does come to see you, um, what sorts of treatments do you use? And um, what would happen if someone knocks at your door and says, hey, I, I think I'm aware that I'm spending too much time thinking about my body and food? Yeah, so definitely use a cognitive behavioral therapy approach. That is the most evidence-based therapy for eating disorders. Um, so that looks at challenging your thoughts and helping to reduce certain eating disorder behaviors. So what we might do is um, challenging yet yeah, those eating disorder thoughts. So like doing a lot of reality checking, like is eating a chocolate bar actually going to make you gain 10 kilos? Because these are the kinds of distorted thoughts that they might have that I can't eat that or that's going to make me gain this amount of weight. So we might actually set up some behavioral experiments to test that. What does that actually look like? Try and eat a cookie and 
try and learn to sit with that anxiety that comes up instead of running away from it from or purging or those kind of things so really facing some of those challenges um, yet talking back to the eating disorder thoughts they're really strong when people are eating they might have voices thoughts saying you know don't eat that you're fat so kind of talking back to those thoughts and saying you know what my body needs this so those kind of things as I said before developing healthier coping mechanisms and really even looking at their values this isn't so much CBT this is more acceptance and commitment therapy but I always like to add this into treatment looking at what you value as a person and what your eating disorder values so eating disorders value you know um, being manipulative or dishonest so lying saying yeah I've eaten that when they haven't um, they might value body weight and shape and those kind of things whereas the person beneath all of that actually values honesty they want to be honest they don't want to be lying to their friends and family saying that I've eaten and I haven't or I haven't exercised and they have they want to be able to be their true self they they want to be able to um, engage in the things they value they might value friendships and things like that the eating disorder doesn't the eating disorder wants to keep them stuck in this cycle of just restriction and those kind of things so really seeing that contrast between what the eating disorder wants and actually what you want are very different things and living by the eating disorders values doesn't actually make you fulfilled whereas living by your values does so trying to get them to live more by their values um, things that are actually important to them so that's a, that's a few different things but there's also there's, there's many more sides of treatment, like helping them to weigh themselves less. So um, often people might weigh themselves multiple times a day. So let's try, let's try and reduce that to once a week. Um, getting them to, to fill out self-monitoring forms. So let's write down all the things that you might eat in a day and what emotions come up when you eat that. Or if you purged, what, what came up for you? What thoughts did you have? What feelings did you have? And how can we work through some of those things together how can we work through those thoughts and feelings so that you understand why in that moment you binged or you purged so getting them to just really understand the the patterns of their eating disordered behaviors and how that can be managed so there are a range of different things that um we would work on bianca i feel like we can we can keep going on this all day but i want to honor your time i i think i think this has been a really good introduction anyways to to the topic and it's clearly a very complex topic and one that mm. you feel very, um, very deep empathy for. So yeah. thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Bianca Lebenholtz. You can find us at talklink.com.au and we look forward to catching you next time.